Welcome to I Love Edmonton Real Estate. My name is Jason Scott, and today we are joined by Blake Murdoch. Blake is a real estate agent with Sterling Real Estate here in Edmonton. Welcome to the show, Blake. Hey, Jason. Glad to be here. How you doing? I'm great. I'm great. Okay. So tell us a little bit about yourself. How is it you got into real estate? Sure. So uh, I've been a realtor for about three years now. So I got my license pretty early in 2014. Talking about my background, I'm a lawyer by training. So I was doing my articling at the time to be called to the Alberta bar as a lawyer and decided, hey, I want to buy myself rental property. So I looked into it and the education was fairly expensive to become a realtor, but to get a commission off of that purchase I made, then, you know, at that point it pays for the education. So I figured, hey, why not go ahead and do it? So I did it and used it to use my license to buy myself rental property with my wife. And then I realized I kind of was interested in potentially pursuing that further. So Okay, so you've got a law degree. Technically, you're a lawyer. Yes, technically I'm a lawyer. I'm not practicing because it's about ten or $12,000 to be insured. So I'm just focusing on real estate right now. Okay, cool. And so you bought that first rental property and then where did you go from there? Well, from there, I you know started getting involved in some networking groups and stuff. And from there, I just started working with you know other clients and had some really good initial experiences. I got my first ever deal, you know, from, of course, from my parents-in-law sent me their neighbors. So I, I sold their acreage and everything kind of stemmed from that. You know, that's kind of how real estate works. You end up kind of branching out slowly and surely. Gotcha. So having the law background, is that applicable in any way to what you're doing with clients on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, for sure. So when I was doing the legal side, I actually did some real estate law. So You know, the lawyers don't usually get involved in a purchase deal or a sale until after the conditions have been lifted. So what the benefit is, I guess, of having someone with legal training would be is to make sure that the contract is properly in place before you make the final commitment to go ahead and to make sure that any, you know, terms are are properly phrased and make sure that you're protected. Of course, the other side of that is negotiation training because all lawyers are you know, professionally trained in interest-based negotiations. So we have some kind of accreditation that way, which helps. Okay. Do you use that as a way of winning clients over and saying, hey, you know, I've got this law degree and it helps me because of X? Yeah, I mean, I do mention it. I also have an MBA. So, you know, some investors appreciate the ability to look at the numbers and things like that. But, you know, for the most part, I think where it really helps me is just establishing trust because there's this foundation that I've been you know, held to the ethical standards of the profession of law, which are very high. You know, I can go to the courthouse and walk through without going through the metal detectors. So if the government and the law society think that that's okay, then presumably I'm not going to lie and cheat people in the real estate deals. So Right. Okay. It just adds an extra couple of layers of professionalism to what you bring to the table. Yeah. And I do think there are real benefits, of course, in terms of you know, real world benefits of those skill backgrounds, but definitely it's initially just helps me establish trust with people. Right. Okay. So you started in 2014 and those of you who are familiar with the Edmonton real estate market in 2014, things were going pretty well. Oil was, you know, in the hundred dollar a barrel range in the summer of that year. And, you know, we're kind of in a different market now. So I find it interesting that you've seen both ends of the spectrum of markets in a relatively short period of time. How has it impacted your business or how have you gone about changing the way you do business? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. Obviously, when I started in 2014, we were kind of hitting the peak of the biggest kind of growth in terms of price and whatnot in the Edmonton region. 
and I did have a really good year. My first year, I did over 20 deals. So that was really a nice start to my real estate career. However, it hasn't really gone down since then for me personally. But in terms of the market itself, we are definitely seeing some changes. We've seen you know, a huge increase in inventory, but we haven't seen any decrease in price. So it's been an interesting kind of economic case study that way. Where do you think we go from here? Well, I think that uh, there's multiple reports, you know, with different predictions that have come out at the beginning of the year here. As you know, the Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation, you know, they guessed the prices were going to go up about 1% this year. And actually, that's what we're seeing so far. The Edmonton Real Estate Board, which I'm, of course, a part of, gave their economic predictions. They actually predicted a decrease in price of 2.7% this year. So actually, at the beginning of the year, I was more inclined to believe them. But so far, it seems like the CMHC is right. And I think that uh, most likely we're going to continue to see relatively stagnant prices because people in Alberta just seem to have, you know, a little bit more money on average and they can kind of weather the storm a bit better than I think in some other parts of Canada. Right. Although I would say in Calgary, my understanding is a different experience there in terms of the market. There's way more listings and more pressure to the downside there. Absolutely. Yeah. So I should qualify what I was saying before, which was to say that the city of Edmonton, and the surrounding region or what I was referring to. Calgary, because it's very much a white collar, oil and gas head office kind of center, those are the first people that get laid off because you can't really lay off the basic workers that are running the refineries. You know, you can reduce their hours, reduce their wages that way. But in terms of that, yeah, Calgary's seen a decrease in price between, you know, I think it's six to 8% on average, so. Okay, and so our economy, our local economy, is more diversified because we've got government here, we've got the universities, etc. Yeah, absolutely. Construction's also been a really big driver for the economy here. And so we've got new projects going into, you know, there's ones that are finishing up like Rogers Place, but there's also a new LRT line, things like that, that really add a big boost to the overall economy. Right. Okay. So you've been in the industry for a couple of years. At what point was it that you were like, you know what, forget law, forget going into business, etc. I'm going to become a real estate agent. Yeah, I'd say it was about six months in. I started kind of in July. And of course, seasonally, real estate starts to slow down in the fall. But then I had kind of a, a really big string the first January, about six months in. And January is actually traditionally a very slow time. And I had four deals in one month. And at that point, I started to realize that, you know, it was going to be possible for me to make a career out of it and kind of be self-employed and control my own life. And that's one of the things that's really great about it. So Right. Okay. So obviously, you know, when you start a new profession, there's a learning curve. Were there any deals or stories that you can tell me from those first few months of being in the business where it's like, wow, I didn't expect that? Yeah, that's a good question. Actually, my very first deal was a very educational one for me because it was, again, this acreage that my parents-in-law's neighbors were selling. And so we put a deal together. Of course, they actually, you know, we ended up settling on a very good price for them. But what happened was after the conditions were lifted and before possession, it came out that the real property report, which is the surveyor's report, that has to be provided by the seller to the buyer before closing was non-existent. And so <laughs> it turns out that the seller was a bricklayer, a retired bricklayer, and he'd built the house. And then further investigation showed that the house was built without any permits whatsoever, it seems. So that was a very interesting educational experience for me. And you know what? It's something, the very first thing that you should talk to your realtor about if you're going to sell a house. So, Right. Okay. So how did that one get resolved? 
Well, luckily, you know, the law firm I used to work at is actually the law firm that was representing the sellers in that deal. So over time, what happened was the closing was delayed a little bit. And then slowly they worked with the county and the sellers and got all the necessary documents together to close the deal. So gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. So have you had any other sort of tales from the trenches over the last couple of years that have been, you know, interesting learning opportunities for you that you can share with our listeners? Sure. Yeah. So another one, I guess, would be last year I had a purchase in Fort Saskatchewan and it was a brand new home. So brand new homes are different because there's the, you know, new home warranty and all these other things. So we collected all that documentation. And then before possession, it came out that the builder had hidden that they had not actually ever completed the rough-in inspection for plumbing. So this created a huge issue again with the city of Fort Saskatchewan. Sorry, were you already at like the drywall stage at this point? No, the house was a spec home in that it was completely built at the time that my client was buying it. Oh, okay. So there was some indication that maybe that the builder, in order to meet the requirements to close the deal, was going to have to rip down all of the walls where there were plumbing and actually have the plumbing inspected and then re-drywall a large part of the house. So that was quite a terrible situation, just a really bad builder. And those sorts of things, you know, you learn over time which builders can be trusted and which can't. And so that was a really good experience. And, you know, obviously a good reason to use an experienced realtor, someone who has been through things like that and knows who to work with and who not to. Okay. What was the best real estate advice that you've ever received? Yeah, so the best advice I'd say I've ever received is it's really simple. It's never forget about opportunity cost. And I talk to, you know, I teach courses for non for profits called the Home Program for first time home buyers. And it's important to never forget opportunity cost, which is, of course, the loss of what you could be doing with money or could be doing in the meantime instead of another course of action. So when I say this, I mean, If you're looking to purchase a house and you're thinking, oh, I'm going to wait and time the market, you know, you really have to think about what your loss is of not being able to build equity over the period of time that you're waiting to buy a home. And is that loss worth the potential gain of maybe the price is going down? So, you know, obviously it's difficult to make these economic predictions with any accuracy beyond, you know, a year or so. But I think that, you know, everyone needs a place to live. And so that's a really good thing to just always keep in mind is never forget about opportunity cost. Right. Okay. So like if we're in a, what should be theoretically a buyer's market right now, there'll be a lot of people waiting to see what the market's doing, et cetera. If they don't own a property already, presumably they're paying rent each month. And so that's a lost amount of money. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. So you have to look at the difference between, you know, your rent as of now, and then the interest on a mortgage payment and other kind of expenses that you would be kind of equivalent to rent in some ways. And then you have to look at the principal portion of your mortgage payment, which I'm sure you obviously educate people about this stuff all the time. And that principal obviously is not like rent. It's very different from rent because you're creating equity with it. So it's just a matter of you clarified it really well, making sure you are comparing things apples to apples. And that's not as simple financially as it might seem. Right. Okay. So we're recording this in very early May and we've got this crazy natural disaster up in Fort McMurray where wildfires are, you know, forcing everyone out of the city. And we don't even know what the full extent of this destruction is up there at this point. What sort of an impact, I mean, who knows what the impact will be on Fort McMurray, but what sort of impact will, you know, 80,000 or so people heading towards Edmonton have on the market here? 
Good question. And we just saw in the news this morning, the fire grew to eight times the size it was last night. So this is not a small natural disaster. This is huge. And what I would say is for the resale market, I don't think there's going to be a big effect on prices because, you know, there's going to be insurance claims happening and insurance policies often require to rebuild on the same site. So, you know, a lot of these people are in the medium term once the dust has settled, literally, be going back to Fort McMurray and building homes. But in the short to medium term here, for the next couple of years, there's going to be a lot of displaced persons in Edmonton. So what I could see happening is for investors and other people, you know, just anyone who owns a rental property, we could see a decrease in the vacancy rates as these people need to be sheltered and they're not going to want to stay in a hotel, you know, for two years while their house is being finished. Right. Yeah. What sort of long-term impact do you think this will have on Fort McMurray itself? Any guesses? Well, I mean, in the short term, there's going to be loss of income from the oil companies, of course, because they've shut down their operations now to house evacuees, et cetera. In the long term, construction's going to boom. I can tell you that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, ironically, this will be good for the Fort McMurray economy in a very perverse sort of way. Yeah, know, other than the fact that it's destroyed, I guess. But yeah, yeah, rebuilding it will have a big impact on those industries that would be involved in the process of rebuilding. But, you know, in the long term, I think it's definitely not helpful to the overall status of that community. It's a tragedy. And, you know, we need to come together as Albertans and work together to help fix it up. Yeah, for sure. With regards to the people moving here, I mean, presumably they will be here for, I would imagine, at the least multiple months. So that would push down vacancy rates, I guess. Will there be any kind of, you know, extra demand on any of those people or maybe investors buying properties because of them moving here? Sorry, can you clarify the question for me? Okay. With all of these people moving here, obviously there will be more demand for rental real estate, right? They've got to live somewhere. Sure. Vacancy rates will go down. We'll probably see some rent increases, I guess. Will there be any sort of demand or increased demand in people buying houses, whether it's the people from Fort McMurray who are saying, you know what, we're going to just live in Edmonton? Right, right. No, sorry. I understand your question. I would say that there will be some increase because there are people, you know, in Fort McMurray who obviously have a lot of money and they might be getting some insurance advances and they might decide to buy a property in Edmonton and either, you know, make a change to their life in the long term or perhaps buy a property and then eventually still move back up and just hold the property as a rental. So definitely I could see an increase in buyers, which would help because we have had an increased inventory. And so it would be nice to you know try to bring that back to balance. Of course, we wish this had never happened, but we could see some benefits there. Right. Okay. So these are one of those black swan events where, you know, a completely unexpected, unpredictable event has long-term and drastic influence on all sorts of things. We can't even imagine where there'll be impacts at this point. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Okay. Now, going back to your first property that you had bought when you first became a realtor, tell me a little bit about that property and what your end goal was. You were buying it as a rental property? Well, do you want to hear the whole story of why I sold it too? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, of course. (laughs) Okay. Some more learning experiences, but it's a 950 square foot raised bungalow in Hazeldean. And Hazeldean is an area near White Avenue, so it's a fairly attractive area for renting and for infill as well. 
So my goal with that property was because it has a basement suite, a legal basement suite. And so my plan was, and what I did do for some time was to rent out the upstairs and the downstairs separately, which worked in a way that created a positive cash flow of $1,000 a month. So it was a very profitable property. So that was really great. And, you know, I did decide to sell it afterward. And the reason for that, a big part of it was I wanted to consolidate with my wife and consolidate our equity and, you know, kind of get our dream house. So that's part of the reason I sold. And then the other reason is I had a tenant in there that I didn't really want to deal with anymore. Mm-hmm. And so I just decided to sell it. Gotcha. Okay. <laughs> All right. Are there any challenges to or any drawbacks to being a real estate agent when you're looking at buying your own properties for investment purposes or otherwise? Drawbacks. It's mostly advantages, honestly, you know, because you can get a lump sum out of it when you close the deal to then use towards renovations and other work that needs to be done. It's kind of obvious when you're buying, you need to disclose that you have an interest in the purchase. But more importantly, when you're selling, you have to disclose, you know, whether you have an ownership interest so that that's understood when you're being communicated to Mm -hmm. about the property. But anyone who wants to be, you know, a hardcore real estate investor, there's some value, I would say, in getting their real estate license. Now, we have too many realtors already. So, you know, maybe some people say I shouldn't say that because the average, I think if you average the number of deals compared to the number of realtors, it comes out to about three deals per year per realtor in the Edmonton region because we've got so many kind of inactive or people who do almost no business. Right. So... But it is something that if, you know, if you're willing to put in the time and education, you can get benefit from it. Right. Okay. So let's say I'm your cousin or a friend from out of town and I'm moving to Edmonton and I have to decide on a real estate agent and I don't really know what to base a decision off of. What are three things that you would tell me to look for in a realtor? It's a really good question. And when I teach the home program course to the first time home buyers that I educate, this is actually part of what, what I talk to them about. So I've got three kind of guidelines. The first would be you want them to be full time realtor and busy. However, you don't want to be getting kind of clues or indications that the person might be overwhelmed because there are some agents who just take on more than they can handle. And then your service level is just going to go down. Another thing that would be good to look for would be some extra professional accreditation. Like we talked about, there are a lot of realtors who don't necessarily have a high level of education, and some of them are very good realtors. But if you have someone who's got the education and training of kind of more complex negotiation and, you know, complex numbers, things like that, that can certainly work in your favor, especially if your property you're interested in is, you know, in any way atypical. And then the third thing would be you want to see that your realtor has a focus on data. And when I say that, I mean, a lot of realtors can give you an idea of value off the top of their head, and that's a useful skill. And, you know, it proves that they have knowledge as well. But if you're going to be making an offer on something, it's definitely a red flag if your realtor is not sending you sales comparables and giving you a logical justification for their recommendations as to price and negotiation. So, Okay. I assume that applies to the selling side of things as well. Absolutely applies to the selling side of things. And, you know, especially with the selling side of things, you want to make sure they've got all the proper documentation. They should be showing you a consumer relationships guide very early on in the process, which outlines the fiduciary duties that they have to you. So if you're not seeing that, then ask for it. And if they don't want to give it, then walk away quickly. (laughs) Okay. Well, Blake, that's really good background information that you've given us. Thanks for taking the time. Is there anything else that you'd like to talk about that we forgot to ask? Well, I mean, 
we could talk about kind of some concepts around just educating our audience, maybe. (laughs) 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 Whatever, you skipped the section, man. Where did I skip? You skipped Ask the Expert segment. Ask the Expert. Okay, why don't you just be quiet for a second, then we'll go into that, okay? (laughs) All right. So, Blake, tell us about an area that you'd like to focus on here for the next couple of minutes just to give our listeners some extra value and education. Sure. So one thing I wanted to talk about was renovations because, you know, with the home and garden television is so pervasive now, everyone's got ideas about renovations and how it's going to increase the value of their property and all that. So I've got some data that I'd like to share. And the data is from the Ontario Association Appraisal Institute of Canada. I didn't have Alberta data because apparently our appraisers aren't as organized or something, but should be fairly accurate relative to Alberta as well. So they've got a list of, you know, what do you get back on resale on average for different types of renovations? Okay. So how much bang for the dollar of reno money? Exactly. So most people know that the best renovations typically are kitchens and bathrooms. So kitchens, they've said 78% is the payback on your typical kitchen and then 71% for bathroom. So interior painting is interesting because it doesn't cost very much. So the payback's very good on that at 74%. Uh Now you might have some other questions, but with regards to the worst ones, a swimming pool? <laughs> swimming pool. Well, that's pretty much. That's not Especially even on the in list. Alberta. <laughs> that's not on the list. That might decrease the value of your house. That's a really, really good thing to mention. Some of the worst, well, the worst is landscaping. So landscaping really? only has an average payback return of thirty-five percent of the money you put into it. Really, I would have thought that was way higher because you know you're improving your curb appeal and whatnot. Right. So Alberta or at least Edmonton region, curb appeal is important in expensive homes. However, it's not as important in average priced homes. And the other reason why landscaping is so lowly valued is just because people spend so little of their time outside because it's cold for so much of the year here. Gotcha. The value of the usable space is limited to the certain months of the year when it's feasible to have fun out there. Which, you know, some people like the winter, but most people stay inside for the most part. So, And that obviously also impacts why swimming pools might not be a great idea. <laughs> yes, plus the fact that swimming pools cost thousands of dollars to maintain. <laughs> it's all connected. Yeah. Okay, so. cool. So just to sum that up, if you had ten or $20,000 to spend on your house to get it ready for sale, you'd touch up your kitchen, your bathroom, and obviously freshen up the paint. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, it depends, of course, on the individual home and what has been renovated most recently versus, you know, if we're talking about an original home from the 60s, then absolutely kitchen and bathroom, yeah, Yeah. and painting. And then the next highest one would be exterior painting. Of course, you don't do that with all forms of siding, but definitely that would be a curb appeal one that would fit your idea from earlier. Okay. Are there any parts of town right now that are trending hotter or cooler or price points? Yeah, well, you know... Everything around White Ave tends to be pretty popular, but I've noticed just inventories moving so quickly around the King Edward Park and Ritchie area. It's just been really fast. So those are neighborhoods just south of White Avenue, right? Exactly. They're just south of White Avenue, and they're not quite as expensive yet as the stuff that's north of White and closer to the River Valley. But they are going through gentrification where they're getting more infill properties 
and the lot values are getting higher and just these small houses are going for more and more money. So Right, okay. Infill housing is a hot topic in Edmonton these days, especially at City Hall. A lot of neighborhoods are, you know, upset about I guess the type of infill or the building practices of the developers who are putting in infill housing. What's your take on things? My take on it is that people generally need to get over themselves. Okay. <laughs> I'm mostly in support of a higher density, you know, housing. I would like to see, you know, more garage suites and things like that, because there's a lot of space with these lane homes that garage suites are legal in certain areas if you meet certain criteria, but an expansion of that would be good. Skinny homes, I think, are a great way for investors now to, you know, take a lot and really transform it into two beautiful properties. But yeah, you just want to try and make sure that the parking is going to be sustainable. But is that the big issue for most neighbors is parking issues once you're basically, you know, doubling the number of households on a lot? Absolutely. That is a huge issue. You know, the city's obviously trying to remedy it in part by expanding the LRT line. Edmonton's known for its monumentally poor public transit. So I think that contributes more to the complaints. So, you know, it's easy to just say, let's do nothing, keep expanding outwards. But we have to have a vision of what we want the city to be in 20 years. And it's going to be more like an American super city in the south if we don't start building up a little bit more. So Right. Okay. So, I mean, that's basically growing pains as a city ages and matures and evolves and we'll look back on this 20 years from now and go, of course we should have done what we're doing, I would assume. I think so, yeah. Okay. So any last thoughts or comments, things that you might want to touch on before we call it a day? No, other than I really enjoyed myself and I can't wait to be back. Okay. Well, Blake Murdoch, <laughs> thanks for joining us and I hope you crush the rest of your year. Thanks, you too. Thank you for listening. You can hear more great Edmonton Real Estate Insiders over at iloveedmontonrealestate.com. There you can find notes and links to everything we've talked about, a link to our Facebook page, and be sure to subscribe on iTunes. Thanks! Until next time!